New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Time and again, fear and greed get in the way of our mutual kinship. Our guest today, Mark Nepo, says every time we meet in kindness and truth, we strengthen the immune system of the global body. Since everything is connected, everything matters. And every time you strengthen a heart, you lessen fear and violence somewhere in the world. This is the challenge of our time, to strengthen our hearts and to lessen our fear and violence. We are all in this together, no matter where we live. Today we'll be exploring the importance of community and how we can cultivate connectedness with our guest, Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo is a poet and philosopher who, for over three decades, has been teaching in the fields of poetry and spirituality. As a cancer survivor, Mark remains committed to the usefulness of daily inner life. He devotes his writing and teaching to the journey of inner transformation and a life of relationship. He's the author of many books, including Reduced to Joy, 7,000 Ways to Listen, The One Life We're Given, and More Together Than Alone, Discovering the Power and Spirit of Community in Our Lives and in the World. Join us for the next hours. We explore how community creates a light in the darkest of times with our guest, Mark Nepo. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's always great to be with you, Justine. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to be with you as well. Um, you know, as always, I always enjoy our conversations. I always learn so much. And this time we're going to be talking about community. And uh, there's something that you mentioned in your book that we are hardwired to connect, and you mentioned something—a Native American uh, thought—that they they say that care is part of our original instructions. And you go on to say, maybe coming out of your own cancer work and thriving cancer. Uh, Cancer cells are the biological equivalent to self-centeredness and 
So with all of those quotes that I put together, can you say something about that idea that we're actually hardwired to to relate to one another rather than to be separated? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I I think that throughout history there's been, uh, you know, an ongoing argument that's never solvable where some people say that we are hardwired to join and that we're naturally innately kind and and uh, caring, and other people say, no, we're worse than animals, and we need every restriction possible to separate us. And obviously, you know, I'm of that first uh, lineage, and and it's pretty obvious throughout history. You know, all you have to do is, biologically, if you put two heart cells in a Petri dish, living heart cells, and leave them alone and come back, in time, they will find a third common beat. And, uh, you know, Irvin Laszlo, who's a, a physicist, um, had done experiments with meditators which showed the same thing. And if you take two people and you have them meditate in silence together, their brain waves will find a common rhythm. And then if you take one of those folks and ask them to leave and introduce a stranger, that stranger well, pretty quickly, their brain waves will meet with that common rhythm. And, and if we look in, you know, in Chinese uh, the history of philosophers, Mencius, who was about 200 years after Confucius and in the Confucian tradition, he had this beautiful metaphor about our, our innate goodness and joining with each other and care. He talked about, he said, water allowed its true nature, will always flow downhill and join other water. And he said, we can manipulate water to go uphill or sideways or around the block, but allowed its true nature, water will always flow downhill and join other water. And he said, so too human beings. Allowed our true nature, we will flow and to each other and help each other and be kind to each other. And we can be manipulated or manipulate ourselves, mostly out of fear and suffering and pain and loneliness, to not flow to each other, but allowed our true nature, we will. And I think, you know, one of the things quite moving to me that I've worked on this book for 13 years like a little worker bee, <laughs> and, and it's way beyond my timing that it should be finished and going public at this time of discord and fear around the globe. So it's a timing larger than me, and, you know, my whole intent in beginning this book was not to create any kind of social theory or find you know, some kind of utopian way of looking at things. I simply wanted to gather stories across time and cultures of moments of when we worked well together and what we can learn from them, because that's a lineage too. Kind of like spiritual physics. Things, when they break apart, make a lot of noise. Things, when they come together, are quieter. Things are constantly doing, life is doing both. Life is falling apart and coming together. But we, 
in our global modern culture are addicted to the noise of things falling apart. So, you know, you just need one example is the weather. You know, when I grew up, when you saw the weather on TV, it was called Weather Report. Now it's called Stormwatch. <laughs> Last I knew that the storm is only one form of weather. So, you know, we're, and I, I think that what, what's so interesting is we don't need a good news station. We don't need to negate what falls apart. We need a whole W-H-O-L-E news coverage that constantly lifts up how things are coming together while reporting how things are falling apart because the resilience of life is in the wholeness of all of it happening at once. And it's no accident that kindness has the same root as the word kinship. When we are kind, we find our kinship and discover that we're more together than alone. I'm reminded of something that you wrote about the two tribes, and you talk about the times we're living in. So one of the responses we might have as things get more complex as a philosopher of in the uh, 1800s, late 1800s and early 1900s, Emile Durkheim said he was a French sociologist, and you mention him in the book. I, so I looked him up. I thought, oh, this guy is really interesting. As societies become more complex, people are no longer tied to one another, and social bonds become impersonal. Periods of drastic social disruption bring about greater alienation alienation and higher rates of crime and suicide and deviance. So uh, that's kind of what we're experiencing right now. And, and so one of the responses to that are those of us who say, ah, you're different from me, so I'm just going to push you away. And then there's another tribe of people who are saying, oh, you're different from me. I want to learn from you. These are different ways of reacting, and one is more cohesive in bringing community together. The other is more alienating, and it's, I think, kind of going back to your analogy, it's like pushing the water upstream, so to speak. Well, let's go, let's go back to, because these are all connected and very powerfully, and, and let's start, you know, like, I so appreciate our conversation, and even after all these years of working on this book, I confess, you know, I'm as troubled as anybody, and I'm struggling as anybody, and I don't have any answers, but I believe deeply that we need to remember and, and enlist this lineage of how we're more together than alone in order to move through this current time. And I'm learning how to do that just as anybody else. But let, let's let's look at that about the two tribes. So first off, I, I think, you know, and what Durkheim refers to, which was a precursor of everything that's become modern technology, there's nothing inherently wrong with technology. I love technology. Look at what we're doing today with through technology. Our difficulty and our challenge is when technology becomes a substitute for relationship and not a tool. When we think that through technology we have a relationship, 
And we're not. We're simply being alone with technology. And so, you know, I love technology as a tool, but this, the challenge always has been, and I find it in my life, is that as long as I work on my inner life, then technology will remain a tool and it won't be a substitute. When I don't, then the way water fills a hole, we have another water analogy, the way water fills any hole, the things around us will by default fill us and by default become our values. So technology is inert, but its characteristics, if I don't meet the outer world with my inner world, the characteristics of, let's say, technology will become who I am. But let's, let's go to the two tribes, and this has been very instructive for me. This is my reflection on how to deal with the discord of our time and, you know, feeling it very deeply as a, you know, third-generation American Jew. I lost family in the Holocaust, you know, so living here in America, never dreaming that I would ever see Nazis in the streets of America. How do I deal with that? What do I do with that? The fear, the shock. And at the same time, trying to reflect on the, the, the current of humanity over history. But like we're not the, the only ones to have gone through this. Let's go deeper into that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mark Nepo, and he is the author of More Together Than Alone, Discovering the Power and Spirit of Community in Our Lives and in the World. And I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Nepo, and he is the author of More Together Than Alone. And um, we're talking about community, and I want to remind you, if you want to know more about Mark Nepo, and he he has these wonderful guides and ways you can tap into his work and, and help uh, to guide you with all sorts of questions that you can work with with your community, um, you can go to his website, marknepo.com, or you can go to threeintentions.com. So, Mark, we're talking about uh, right now, you you were describing how 
where in this timing, you never thought that you would see something that is akin to anything that was going on in Germany back in the mid-1900s. The paradox here is, is, and this is what led me to explore, and I'll explain about the two tribes uh, metaphor or chapter that's in the book. So on the one hand, you know, I find myself uh, terrified and aghast that... Uh, that the lack of decency that is permeating through our our streets and around the world. And as I back up and say, well, I'm not the only one. We're not the only time. How, what, is, what, what pattern are we a part of over history? And as I do that, I start to see this paradox that we are they. There is no they. No matter how different, even those people walking in the streets, we are they. And how do we hold both? Um, you know, when I go back to imagine in the beginning, and this is, you mentioned this, but in the beginning of time, when the first human beings came upon each other, they didn't realize there were other human beings. And imagine one person in cave times came upon an opening and they saw each other and they were startled. They said, oh my God, well, who are you? And the one in the cave, first response out of fear was, yes, you're different, go away. And I imagine that that was the beginning of the go-away tribe. And the manifestations of that fear is that even if I tell you to go away, if I'm afraid enough, I can't trust that you'll go away. And so now I need to make you go away. So now I'll put you in a detention camp or a refugee camp or a ghetto or a concentration camp or a reservation. And in the terrible periods of genocide throughout history, the fear gets so great that I can't even trust that you'll be where I put you. So now I need to make you go away. I need to kill you. I need to exile you. I need to get rid of you. On the other side, you imagine the person outside the cave, just as startled, but not as fearful, and his first reaction or her first reaction is, oh, you're different, come teach me. Come teach me. Together we will be whole. And, you know, this Plato was one of the people of the, the come teach me tribe when he said we are born whole, W-H-O-L-E, but we need each other to be complete. And all the different spiritual traditions have different ways of talking about this. In the Jewish tradition, God, or the presence of the divine, is known as an indwelling presence. But it only comes alive through relationship. So like the striking of a match lights a flame, that, that, that divinity is inherent in the match. But, but it doesn't show itself until there's some friction, holding, embrace, relationship. You know, and in this way, which I uncovered in The One Life We're Given, is that our gifts are like that match. Our gifts do not reveal their light or warmth until we strike them against the needs of the world. And in the greatest periods of Become Teach Me tribe, we have these periods and moments of enlightenment, whether they be a moment 
or whether they'd be 300, 400 years on the Iberian Peninsula when, when Jews and Christians and, and Muslims all not only lived well together, but it was one of the high points of civilization. But the, the real crux of this and the challenge is we belong to both tribes, every one of us depending on the amount of fear we wake with in any given day. And, you know, I can talk to you today as a member of the Come Teach Me tribe, and tomorrow, if I'm afraid enough, I will switch tribes, and I'll need you to remind me. You know, we need each other uh, more than ever. And so I think that one of the greatest... uh, bravest things we can do to ask each other for our experience and not our conclusions. How do we recover? Because it's through, it's through great love and great suffering that we remember that we are of one tribe, the human tribe. Often, and that's the, that's one of the points. Oftentimes, we do come together when there is something catastrophic going on, uh, you know, fires or or floods or or hurricanes or tsunamis or whatever it is. And there are parts of your book where you go into different histories, and I'm recalling one that really, really popped for me, Mark. That I've found myself repeating this story. It was one I didn't know, and it was came out of a conversation, a much longer conversation that you had with Howard Zinn, the historian who's the late Howard Zinn, where communities have come together in, in some sort of mutuality. And he mentioned something about the Commune of Paris and the, the balloons they sent up. I, I'd love for you to tell a little bit about the Commune of Paris in, in 1871. Yeah, so, so to back up a second, and let's just talk a moment about Howard Zinn, who is just was a remarkable, as you know, remarkable historian and teacher, and I was blessed to know him for a brief time in which he was a great teacher for me. And it was just when I was beginning this book, and I had asked him about this, do you think that there are moments of community and that they make a difference? And he, he said, so I want to share first the analogy, which I use as the epilogue to the whole book. Um, he said to me, he said, you know, when the Wright brothers flew the first plane for 27 seconds, and I think it was 1903, everybody knew it was just a matter of time before we would be having, you know, jets fly around the world, before we would have a man on the moon. And he said, why not the same thing with community and with how we care for each other? And, you know, he said, it's just a matter, if we can have these moments and if we can learn from them, and enliven them and tell their stories, then it's only a matter of time before we can inhabit a beloved community, as Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of. So when I asked him, uh, his first, I said, well, do you have, are there any moments that stand out for you? 
And so one of the first ones he shared with me was of the Paris Commune of 1871. So at that time, there was a, a, a collective of anarchists. And we have to realize that anarchists, it doesn't mean what it means today. Anarchy today means chaos. It means a belief in no government, in nothing. And that's not... Originally, anarchists meant... It, it meant working together as a community. It, it meant the common good uh, was was the, the highest ethic for everyone involved. There was no higher class or low or poor. That was the aim. So anyway, at this time, briefly, this movement took over the government of France. And at the time, the first thing that they did was, and, and the, the leading technology, the, the airplanes of the time were hot air balloons. And so they enlisted all these probably 60 to 80 hot air balloons, and they mimeographed, which was the leading, the leading word technology of the time, one sentence on a sheet of paper, a flyer, and they made hundreds and hundreds of them and that sentence, all it said was, our interests are the same. And they flew those balloons and dropped leaflets all over France to their countrymen and women to say simply, our interests are the same. And that moment, that, that commune of 1871 didn't last very long. I think it lasted only a few weeks before they were kicked out and and more traditional forms of power took over. But it's a powerful metaphor. You know, Henry uh, Longfellow said that if you ask your enemies the stories of their suffering and listen, they would no longer be your enemies. You know, I, and I'm thinking, as you tell that story, they only lasted a few weeks I'm thinking, oh, yeah, but here we are talking about it today. They're, they're still with us right here, right now. And I'm thinking that whole idea that our interests are the same. And that's where, when we're talking about how we get down to our own level of cooperation and community now, which is so needed right now, rather than division, is to get down to that bedrock of where our interests really, truly, where we know that they are the same beyond politics, beyond gender identity, beyond any of the prejudices that we have, that, that bedrock. I think, and again, I don't, I don't have any uh, answers I'm still trying to figure this out, but myself, and I think some of the traditional things that have worked throughout time and all the traditions speak of them uh, are still true. Holding and listening are two of the oldest medicines we have. And when we can take the risk to hold and be vulnerable and truthful enough to ask to be held, when we can listen and admit that we don't know and truly listen to each other and our experience 
two of the oldest medicines that have always worked in all traditions are holding and listening. And when we have the courage to ask to be held or the courage to hold or to ask to be heard and the courage to listen without judgment or conclusion, we will refine each other and in a way that's meaningful that will lift up our kinship. Thank you. I'm here with Mark Nepo, and he is the author of More Together Than Alone, Discovering the Power and Spirit of Community in Our Lives and in the World. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Nepo. He's the author of More Together Than Alone. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, marknepo.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And he has, within his website, guidelines for gathering in small groups. So I encourage you to, to check out the website and check out the book with all the questions and and suggestions and help that he gives us to get together and to address these divisions uh, within our public life these days and maybe even within our families or within our small groups, wherever we, we are. And because we are relentlessly stressed these days, and there's one thing that I want to talk about and address when we're talking about differences and stress and all of that and coming together in conversation. I want to have you talk about the psychology of poverty, because this is this is a big stress in our society and that can't be ignored, I believe. And I think we must address that in some way. Uh, would you agree, and what could you say about it? Yes, well, that's referring to uh, Dr. Shafir's work, um, and it's very insightful and helpful what he raises. He, he, he talks about the, the, the added pressure. So Dr. Shafir offers the analogy of a suitcase. He says that, you know, those of us who have more than enough we go on a vacation, and uh, we don't have to think about what we want to wear, what we want to pack. We just throw everything in and go. But when you don't have enough, you have to spend an extra level of consciousness under tension deciding, what do I put in and what do I leave out? And how far can I go? And when can I go? And what way can I go? And so there is this whole other level of thinking, consideration, tension that precludes your direct living once you get wherever you're going. 
Now, he offers, too, that if you... Another way to think about that is if you have a checkbook and you make an error of $20, well, even if you're not rich, but, but if you have $200, okay, $20, it's an error, but you're okay. But if you only have $60, $20 is some of the food you're going to have that week. So, you know, it's the add of this psychology of poverty and not having enough. And yet, paradoxically, and now we're leaving Dr. Shafir's work, but paradoxically, it is known that the people who give the most around the world, the largest group of philanthropists, are those who are poor, who have very little. And I think that's because the kinship of knowing what it's like not to have enough releases this incredible compassion. You know, when my grandfather, who I'm most like, uh, my father's father, who grew, they grew up in the Great Depression in Brooklyn, and he used to bring strangers home for dinner. And my grandmother would take him aside and, and whisper, what are we going to do? Why do you keep doing this? And he would give her a kiss on the cheek and smile and say, break whatever we have in half. <clears throat> It'll be enough. And that's a lineage that we're more together than alone. And that's below politics. And it's, you know, it's, it's the fact that when, when I, once I've hurt my back and I'm in the grocery store, and the old woman who's older than me, who obviously is in pain and is shuffling very slowly, well, now, because I know what that's like, I go offer to carry her groceries. Where if I don't enlist that compassion, then I sit there and I get impatient and I go, oh God, I know she's hurting, but can't she go faster? We, have, we face these choices every day. And this is another manifestation of which tribe are we in that day. You're different. You're slowing me down. Go away. Versus, oh, you're, you're different. Come teach me. Through our experience, we are the same. Or the Hindus say, thou art that. We are each other. So that goes back to what uh, the introduction in, in your words about um, that every time, every, everything matters and we strengthen our heart and all of that contributes. And I would love for you, there's another story that you tell, and this has to do with kinship, this has to do with communication, and it's a story that you tell where we can be together even without language, and understand one another. And this is a, a moment uh, that you experienced at the Parliament of World's Religions yes. in Barcelona. I was there as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I, it was a very, very wonderful meeting. And you're talking about being at one particular meeting 
where you couldn't speak the language. Can you describe that meeting? There was a gathering, it was a workshop, and there were about 40 or 50 people. And I was one of, uh, actually I was, I was leading with three, three other people this workshop, and we had arranged for a translator because most of the people spoke Spanish, and we were really the only people who spoke English you know, in the room. Well, the translator didn't show up, and who knows what happened, but there we were, and after a time, we just started to try to talk anyway and relate, and it was very interesting because even though I didn't know what they were saying, I, I didn't know the particulars, but I clearly knew the feeling and the situation by their emotion and their gestures and their silence and, and everything about, about them. And so without the words getting in the way, we do understand each other. And then, then a, a young man came in, university student, who offered to, to translate for us. So he continued to translate and, uh, and we still were hearing large portions in Spanish or in English before he would tell the entire story that we were sharing. And so there was this deeper level of receiving each other and then our common way with words. And then this got even more profound because his father was coming to pick him up, the translator. He didn't realize where his son had wandered, he wandered into the room. And he listened for a while, and then he t took this amazing risk to uh, share with all of us. And you could tell it was a risk, because he, he was speaking, I didn't understand it. And then finally his son translated his own father, saying, you know, I have a mental illness, and I'm better now because of medication, but, but I, I haven't always been kind to my family. And I feel shame unless I share and am honest about my life. And here is this young man translating his father saying this to a virtually a room of strangers. And we were all incredibly uh, connected. But it, let me tell another story that's in the book that's from another time. And... This goes back to the, <clears throat> the 1400s in West Africa. And, you know, like, like other places in Africa, Western European countries had colonized different parts of Africa and India. And so in what is now Angola, Portuguese sailors had come on behalf of the Portuguese government and had basically enslaved the Angolan population. And just like everywhere else, it treated them terribly. Well, at one point, the native warriors of this tribe in Angola captured the Portuguese sailors, tied them up, brought them to the interior, and they didn't hurt them. They stood them on poles in the ground and they proceeded 
to tell them through translators what it was like to live under their rule, the indignities, the oppression, the cruelty, the harshness. And then they took them back to the coast and released them and put them back on their ships. Mm-hmm. These Angolan warriors did this three, four, five times. Mm. And within the next 60 years, there was a rebellion to free what is now Angola from Portuguese rule. And it was started by those sailors. That's an incredible story. It truly, it truly, it truly is. And, and it's... Uh... There, there's a phrase that you use in your your book um, that we must be guardians of the flicker of dignity, and that 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 moment, that moment of flicker of dignity, when we see it, we 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 might see it on a street corner. We might that moment of authenticity when that man shared with that group of people. Uh, and it, it just breaks our heart open, doesn't it? Well, and this leads to, you know, th- this is so important uh, that we need to have the courage to keep the literacy of the heart alive. Because while there's so much noise, and it seems like, like globally we are moving into a dark age, it's really not clear yet which way this is going. And that's why everything that we do, even having this conversation, matters. And one of the images from nature that I use in the book is of the aspen grove. Groves, square acres of thousands of aspen trees, and they are one of the largest single living organisms in the world because Above ground, they are individual trees, but if you go below, they are all connected in one root system. So everything that's going on today, we are they, and we are all connected. You know, your roots and my roots are connected. If my roots are diseased, it matters to your health. I'm here with Mark Nepo. He's the author of More Together Than Alone. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Nepo. He is the author of More Together Than Alone, Discovering the Power and Spirit of Community in Our Lives and in the World. And Mark, you're, you're just talking about how we're rooted together, how we're really all connected. And I'm reminded of a story that you share in the book from uh, the storyteller Clarissa Pinkoli Estes. And she talks about a, a man on his deathbed and his giving some uh, sticks to his uh, family. And can can you describe how, the teachings that he gave his family then? Yeah, so he, gave, he was... Gave his sticks, individual sticks, to his loved ones, and he said, "Okay, break the stick." And they all broke them. And then he he took out of his drawer near his bed another set of sticks, and they were they were just held together with string. And he passed to to each of them and said, "Now, now try to break the bunch of sticks, the bundle." And no one could could break it. And he said, you know, we can't, when we swear together, we can't be broken. Individually, we can be broken, but together we can't be. And so, you know, there is this, another paradox that in our lives, we want to live our soul calling, our light. We want to be individually who we are to the fullest. But no one can make it alone. And, you know, the, the shadow or the dark side of community is when we give ourselves away to belong. Or we are demanded by, the, by whoever is in charge of that community or that effort to muffle who we are. Well, I would say that that's the shadow of community. That's not the true power of community. You know, one of the great, uh, this is through the Holocaust literature, but Martin Niemöller, who was a Lutheran pastor, who really didn't, he was almost anti-Semitic in the beginning, and then he was indifferent, and then he was mostly against how the, the Nazification of churches but he never really got involved. And after the war, he wrote what is now a very famous poem, which said, you know, when, when they came to take the handicap, I didn't say anything because I'm not handicapped. When they came to take the Jews, I didn't say anything because I wasn't Jewish. When they came to take the unionists, I didn't say anything because I didn't belong to a union. And when they came to take me, there was no one left to say anything. And we are, we are in this together. And I would say that, and I don't know how to, any way around this, but you know, in the circle of healing, I would welcome everyone except the one intent on breaking the circle. And that, that, that just reminds me that, that that is the challenge of community is to stay open to more than our own opinions so that, uh, you know, we, we, to keep our hearts and open and to know the kind of assumptions we're making and conclusions that we're holding 
and where that that constrict our being able to see the the greater whole here and and that's one of the strengths that you list as a as a good healthy community is that uh, uh, that that more than one mind or one heart uh, uh, is is present that there's that that diversity that bigness that 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 holds us. And, and, you know, when we go to the Native American tradition again for a great example of this, Native American elder circles have always and still meet in circle, not just to ensure equity, because there's no head to a circle, but more so so that every person has a direct view of the center. And the assumption in that beautiful wisdom is that we need everybody's view to apprehend or comprehend the whole, the center, all of life. And this means that we don't choose meaning, we gather meaning. I need your view and your view and your view and my view to even approach wisdom and truth. And kindness allows us to open the door to all the different views. And this is so important. That's why I believe that what we're facing today in America and elsewhere in the world is below politics. It's about decency and the literacy of the heart and uh, caring for each other. And, you know... Uh, providing bigger suitcases to each other, and I, I so I I can hear you say, and you've mentioned several times in this interview, kindness, and uh, I just want to unpack that idea a bit because I I know that this can be a mantra for us when we when we feel ourselves reactive. And oftentimes we will, no matter how enlightened we are, that each one of us uh, might, will have those moments. And what advice can you give or experience can you share with us about how we can more readily tap into our nature of kindness? Well, I think that, um, and again, I don't have any answers. I struggle with this every day. But kindness involves being present with an open heart, not holding anything back in all directions, including to myself. So kindness doesn't mean that I allow myself to be walked over or violated or abused. Kindness to myself means I stand in my truth and my authenticity, and I welcome you in yours. And that's where we find that our interests are the same. You know, all trees grow, break ground. And while they flower differently and they grow in different directions, they're all growing to the light. And they all have the same roots, like those aspen trees. And so how do we, by being open and honest and kind, return to our true connections? as human beings, and not pretend 
that we have the answers or that we know where this is going, but that, you know, I mean, one of the most beautiful, I, use this, I talk about this in the beginning of the book, and it's just a brief, amazing moment that, that Elie Wiesel recalls from his landmark book, Night, his account of his time as a 15-year-old in Auschwitz, and how at the end of the, the war, they didn't, as, as inmates, they didn't know that, that the Allied forces were coming. But the Nazis began a death march in winter to remove as many people from the camps before the Allied forces got there. And frankly, they, they didn't care how many would die along the way. And so they were kind of almost running, being forced in, uh, you know, with rifle butts to keep moving. And if someone fell down or stopped, they would be shot. And at one point in this terrible cold night, um, an old man near Elie Wiesel fell down. And instantly, he and several other men fell on top of him. And the Nazis could have shot them all, but in the chaos, they just hit them all back to their feet and they kept running. But that moment has stayed with me because in that moment is the mystery and power of community. What were, they, were these other men so exhausted from their own journey that, that they didn't even think? And they just reflexed into their innate kindness that said, no, we're in this together. And they fell on top of him, the old man, so that they couldn't tell who had fallen. Or were they just tired of it and were saying, I don't care if they shoot me first. But whatever it is, they got below their minds. And they simply acted on the same kind of love that allowed those people, the Swedish people, to put on the Star of David when the Germans were collecting Jews so that they wouldn't know who was Jewish and who wasn't. It's extraordinary in these moments how humans have this capacity. It's not rational. It goes, as you say, directly into another part of our being, and that's where we were. We're responding from that place. If if I go back to the beginning of the interview with you uh, talking about how our innate instructions are to care. And with that said, I just want to thank you so much, Mark, for caring today and being part of New Dimensions and having this conversation with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. I've been speaking with Mark Nepo, and he is the author of More Together Than Alone, Discovering the Power and Spirit of Community in Our Lives and in the World. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, marknepo.com. He spells Nepo, N-E-P-O, marknepo.com. He also has another website, threeintentions.com. Or you can get to either one of those through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 
3640. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.